Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to bring you ideas and resources so you can build your professional development plan. I'm happy to bring you this week an exciting and timely conversation, actually a bonus episode with Cheryl Richards. She's the new president of Johnston Wales University's Charlotte campus. And Cheryl has been a dynamic leader at each of her career stops, including multiple senior roles in higher education. She's also been a dedicated community volunteer, serving in board leadership roles at the American Heart Association, Smart Start of Mecklenburg County, as well as Patriots Path, serving veterans. All of Cheryl's experience really translates to a career development checklist that'll help you as you ponder your journey along the nonprofit path. There are a number of things I would listen for in this episode uh, from Cheryl's early goal-setting exercises and how she articulated her long-range plan, uh, the self-assessment activities she underwent, and the results that came from that, her focus on education and the credentials necessary to advance, and, of course, perhaps most importantly, her willingness to raise her hand and volunteer in professional settings that were outside her actual job description. Well, clearly these tactics paid off, and they're going to help you as well. As always, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 46. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources, the links and books that Cheryl and I discussed, as well as information on Cheryl and the great work she's doing at Johnson & Wales University. Speaking of resources, we're getting lots of interest in our virtual masterminds program. And if you'd like to learn more, just go to our website, hit us up with any of the contact information, phone, email, or information form, and we'll tell you more about it. We're looking at three different tracks for new to nonprofit, to veterans in the nonprofit field, as well as those pondering uh, a lateral move from the for-profit sector into nonprofit. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Cheryl Richards. Cheryl, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you, Pat, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Well, your leadership journey is impressive on multiple stops, and so I'm excited to let our listeners learn about those things you've picked up along the way, in particular, your most recent transition and how you have adapted your leadership along the way and now how it's all coming together. But speaking of how it's all coming together, maybe tell our listeners, uh, how did you come to the nonprofit path? Um, you know, I when I was young in my career, Pat, and somebody told me that um, you don't necessarily get to choose your career, your career gets to choose you. <laughs> That's and, great. Um, I, I thought it was um, interesting, you know, being a young 20-something-year-old who was quite ambitious, and I thought, no, I, you know, I'm destined for great things, and um, I found my way into higher education, um, starting as an undergraduate student, you know, working in the residence halls and in student activities and things, and then had an opportunity to go back to graduate school and thought, well, this is, this is really fun work. You know, you get to work with um, developing young individuals who are trying to find their own path. And what a, an honor it is to be a part of shaping that and exposing them to you know, things they may not have ever thought about and um, helping them find their strengths and lean into it. 
And so it started really as, you know, kind of a personal passion for me because it was fun work. And, um, and then I put myself in positions of just saying yes all the time. Anytime a new nice. opportunity you know, would come to me, I would say, yes, sure, I'll try that. Sure, I'll try that. And I, I didn't always know the answer, but I knew I could figure it out. And I think that's a really important lesson for nonprofit leaders, right? You, you never know where it's going to take you. You have a passion and a mission, you know, kind of an alignment of your core for something. But being able to say yes to things that might deviate outside the parameters of that so that you can gain a new perspective yourself and bring it back to your work, I think is really important. And so my journey um, started with a lot of yeses and, you know, some really interesting opportunities that led to progressively more responsible leadership opportunities. And one day I woke up and I said, you know, I think I want to be the president of a small private nonprofit um, liberal arts university. And you know, here I am doing Indeed. exactly that. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and I take it, Cheryl, the, the saying yes to things, obviously we're not necessarily in your job description. Is that also mm -hmm. kind of a lesson perhaps you've picked up that, you know, go outside of your natural uh, comfort zone, maybe? Exactly. I think it's really important. You know, there's this great line, um, particularly in nonprofit jo job descriptions that is at the very bottom and it's a tiny bullet and it says other duties as a sign. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think, you know, when you're working in a nonprofit, you know, one day you can be the uh, CEO and the next day you can be the um, shopping person, you know, running out to Target to buy toilet paper for the office. And so, you know, having that flexibility to say yes to other duties as a sign, um, you know, one, it makes you a, a, a lead in the organization because people know you're willing to do anything on behalf of the organization, but you know, sometimes some really cool opportunities come your way and you learn something from that and you can take that into the next job. Right, um, and I think, right. you know, I had, I was fortunate to get a number of those where they weren't in my job description and somebody said, Hey, will you try this project or take on this new assignment? And I said, yeah. And, um, and that led to something bigger and better. I love that. And it certainly enhanced your skills and experiences that perhaps if you had stayed more passively in, in the role you were in, you would not have had that. And it's, uh, I'm sure played well now. And before we get into the now, which yeah. is an exciting new opportunity for you, Cheryl, I ask all my guests, you know, given the volume of activity you have to deal with as a college president, how do you stay organized? I think that's one of the greatest challenges um, for any nonprofit uh, leader because right. we're, we're so tied into the mission of our work. And frankly, there's no shortage of work because we're always, you know, very lean staffed and, you know, limited resources. Um, and I will admit, Patton, you know, I haven't always been good at it. Um, I've stumbled along the way and sure. fell out of balance a lot of times. And I think giving yourself grace for that when you fall out of balance and then regaining it back to you know, find some of that is an important lesson to learn. Um, I'll, I'll tell you my goals for my new job um, because I'm hoping to start out on the right path in this one to stay <laughs> right. organized is, um, you know, I get up every morning and I check my phone to just see what's in there. You know, has something come in overnight while I'm in a sleep that I need to respond to immediately? Um, you know, what's happening in the state of the world that I need to respond to. And 
you know, just kind of give me an orientation for while I was, you know, deep in slumber, what happened? Any fires burning that you've right. got to put out, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And once I figured out that, you know, there aren't fires that are burning, um, then it's me time. And um, I, in my last position too, got really good about taking care of my physical well-being and, um, you know, getting up and, and exercising in whatever way that's meaningful for you, you know, as an individual, I was never really good at that. And I, I realized that not only was it poor on my health physically, but it's poor on your mental health. Great point. Right? Because if you're constantly thinking about work, you're not uh, releasing some of that stress to give you a new perspective to come back at it. So, so my new routine is to kind of get up, manage the crisis, take some time for myself, get myself in a good mental and physical state of mind, and then come back at it. Um, the other thing I'm trying to do in this new role is manage the inbox. I think that's a you know challenge of emails. Um, instead of picking up the phone anymore, people you know will send you a quick email, even if it's a thank you, right. which is nice and it's great. But boy, does that clutter up your email box? <laughs> right. You know. So um, trying to spend you know the evening after I get through the day's work and I'm I'm sitting on the couch with my laptop at. 11 or 12 at night, whatever the time may be, is just to go back to the inbox and say, what can I delete? What can I archive? What can I flag that you know, I need to come back to and get rid of it? Um, because my, my daughter chuckles. She looks at my phone and she's like, why do you have 21,000 unread emails? <laughs> Ouch. I, really, I really don't. But you know, I think trying to get your hand around that uh, you know, is, is good best practices of trying to stay organized. Love that. And and again, you're right. I think none of our career productivity is going to be effective if we're not physically taking care of ourselves. And so productivity is indeed a result, I think, of that. And yeah, when you do figure out email management, please let me know. I think <laughs> we're, all, we're all still drowning in yeah. multiple communications, but I like your approach for sure. Um, what I also like about your approach, Cheryl, is, I mean, you were very successful in your nine-year run at Northeastern. Um, but all of us, and I think our listeners perhaps, are pondering changes, near term or long term. So what were some of the factors that, that came to you as you pondered a change and moved to Johnson & Wales? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's an interesting time to make a change um, right now, right? We're living in the middle of a pandemic, and not many people have the opportunity to make a change, right? right. And so I, I felt blessed to be given even the opportunity to consider that. Um, for me personally, it was about challenging, challenging myself in another way. And, and I did the same thing when I left CPCC and took on the opportunity at Northeastern. Um, you know, I had, I had inherited an organization at CPCC that needed a lot of TLC, needed a lot of um, strategic vision, needed some team building and culture rebuilding. Um, and put a lot of those things in place. And it was really, really hard work for the first, you know, three, four years. Right. And right. then once you get, you know, once you figure out what the strategic plan is and you get everybody on board, it, it starts to work like a well-oiled machine. And so your challenge as a leader is then to figure out how do you keep pushing the organization forward? And how do you, how do you keep pushing yourself personally forward? right at the same time. So I remember my husband coming to me when, when Northeastern first approached me nine years ago, and he said, you know, why would you give up a great gig at CPCC where 
everything's working really smoothly. Like you could, you know, walk away from the job for a month and your people are so well positioned. They could run it on right. their own, you know? And I said, because I need a new challenge for yeah. me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just not wired that way to coast. Um, and so that was the reason I left CP and, and took on the opportunity at Northeastern. So similarly, if you think about coming in the door at Northeastern, um, the role was CEO and regional dean. So it was the highest level leadership position that you could have in this region. Um, and I had to build everything from scratch. So again, you know, coming back into it, um, putting a strategic plan together, hiring all the people, you know, putting policies and procedures in place, figuring how to work in a networked campus environment with a main campus in Boston and a, you know, the first satellite campus in Charlotte. There was a lot of building that needed to happen. And um, that, you know, I think I scratched that itch about four or five years in. We were great successes in academic programs and enrollment and community relations and things. And so I reinvented what the university was doing uh, about four years ago and took on a whole new area of corporate learning, working with um, businesses, you know, to set up customized corporate engagements and had been doing that now for about four years and kind of building that. And when Johnson and Wales, um, you know, opportunity came and they approached me to have a deeper conversation about this, I thought, you know, this is another point where I've built and I've built and now it's running seamlessly. The institution, the people, they know their direction know where they're headed this is a great opportunity for me to now take my leadership to the next level right and um it johnson wales in many ways is very very similar it's a network of campuses you know to be the president of a campus in charlotte when there's other campuses around the u.s um is is very similar and i that's comforting for me to know that i can i can manage through that complexity um, it also brought me back to the goal that I stated very early on in our conversation about my goal was to become the president of a nonprofit private liberal arts university. Absolutely. That had a residential component to it. And, um, you know, I didn't have residence life and athletics and student organizations at Northeastern because it was primarily graduate. Um, and so for me, this is my next, you know, leadership opportunity to bring everything I've learned in a culmination back to a goal that I set out for myself. Um, I just get the, the, the benefit and the honor of doing it during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we'll, we'll unpack that, that benefit or honor uh, as it, as it were. I am curious though, Cheryl, the, you know, you, I think you have maybe made this comment to me in previous conversation or I read it about, I think philosophically, you believe at point at some point organizations, even highly successful ones, need new leadership. Yeah. Uh, can you expand on that? Is that fair? Yeah, it is. I think you pulled that. That was a quote out of the Business Journal that um, when they were asking me why I made this move, and I do believe in that. You know, I think um, it, every new leader has a different perspective and a different style and a different strength that they bring to the organization. And you know, if you um, it, for me to stay at Northeastern beyond this nine years, I asked myself, what would I be doing differently for me? But more importantly, what would I be adding to the institution that I hadn't already thought of, right? And, and attempted to do. And I think 
that's important um, for organizations to recognize that new leadership can often infuse um, you know, new energy and excitement. And, and frankly, Pat, and I'm hoping to do that at Johnson & Wales. You know, Absolutely. They've, they've been through a number of leadership challenges over the last five or six years. And so, you know, I'm hoping to bring some of that to this new role as well. I, of course, I have no doubt you will, and it's exciting for this community, and I'm, I know for Johnson Wales. I am curious, though, in nonprofit leadership perspective, uh, the fire hose that any new leader has to endure, and I'm sure you're dealing with that to some extent now. I'm a big fan of Michael Watkins' book, The First 90 Days, yeah. which talks about organizing this exactly what you're going through. So I'd love to hear how have you approached this volume of stuff coming at you and, and trying to, or, you know, organizing it in a meaningful way? Yeah, I'm glad you referenced that book because I, I have read it a couple times and it's sitting on my shelf here. I think it's a great roadmap for right, kind of, right. you know, assessing the things that you need to do. Um, the other piece that I have been reminded um, in this first 14 days is the importance of being able to adapt and to pivot and um, to lean into, you know, whatever may be happening. So, you know, I think I came in with a plan of, um, okay, I want to meet all of the key stakeholders, both internal to the organization and external to the organization. I want to understand the business, you know, what we do um, from their lens. And I want to understand how their role fits into the overarching strategic plan and part of that is so you can assess where your talent exists, right? You want to know, is everybody on the right bus and are they in the right seat? And right. are, you know, is the organization fully using their capabilities to their highest and best use? And so, you know, part of the first 90 days is assessing that and getting your arms around the organization. You have to get your hands um, deep into the financials, right? Because all nonprofits um, work on very thin margins. Yep, and right. so, you know, if, if you don't have your hands, your handle on what is, um, what's keeping you afloat and what's driving your next opportunities, then you cannot make strategic decisions because you'll make them blindly and not have the resources to execute. So I think, you know, that has been a priority for me is trying to understand the business model and where the opportunities exist, you know, um, internally and externally to the university. And then, you know, to the point of um, meeting people, I have I've met a lot of the individuals, um, the employees, the faculty and staff. We can come back to that about how you do that in a virtual uh, setting, because <laughs> right, um, right. that you know adds another layer of challenge. Um, but I also had a chance to meet with um, students, uh, a small group of new student orientation leaders, and you know, my question to them is, why are you here, and why did you choose to be a leader of this organization and step into it? Because when you hear the perspective of your consumers and you understand their motivations, then you can make good decisions around the organization. Right? Love that. So I think, you yeah. know, my, my consumers are my students and certainly the employers um, around here and then also the, the employees that work here. Um, and then I'll come back to, I think, the importance of being flexible. And so um, on day eight or nine for me um, here, Johnson & Wales uh, announced that they would be consolidating two of their campuses in Denver and Miami 
And um, that meant that more focus on the opportunities that exist in Charlotte and uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And so I knew I was coming into an opportunity to grow the, the university's prominence in our region, to reestablish some of those relationships in the community, to reinvent our academic programs. What I didn't realize was really the canvas that I was being given to do that. And so, you know, my first 90 days, I had a great plan in place of, you know, yeah. meeting with people and kind of checking <laughs> it off in sequence. And, you got to adapt you know, now, don't you? Yeah, yeah, trying to get through that. And, and that quickly changed, you know, eight days in. And then the, you know, the resurgence of our pandemic um, is making us uh, rethink some decisions about how we're operating classes and, you know, gatherings and things like that. So it is a, it is a constantly moving target. And I'm, there's no script that yeah, you get to right. follow. You, you can't know, in literally. 90 days, you, you right. just got to pivot and, and learn. But I love your, you know, I look almost at the checklist you've offered kind of leaders listening, you know, the personnel, um, budget and finances, the consumer, whoever you serve. Um, and those three, I, I think I've got to serve you well, even at day 14. And of course, with that additional caveat of flexibility, because you yeah. do have to adapt and every leader is going to have to adapt. Um, Another leadership angle I wanted to ask you about, Cheryl, because you've experienced it in, you know, several of your uh, stops, um, being a, quote, satellite or a chapter or, you know, many nonprofits uh, do have the luxury, I suppose, of being an independent local nonprofit. But many of our nonprofit friends are serving organizations that have a national or international office. So are there unique dynamics or lessons you've learned in interacting with you know, the quote national office. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm so glad you brought this up, Patton, because I think this will become even more important for our aspiring nonprofit leaders. Um, you know, when they get into places um, uh, and allow me to digress for one minute, because sure. I, um, I'll share a story that I think is also prevalent in nonprofit leaders. And that is that people wait for a title in order to exercise their leadership abilities. And I, I can't tell you how many young people I've said, I've talked to and mentored where they said, oh, well, when I just get to be the executive director of X, you know, waiting for the title, be, right? Yeah, waiting yeah, for the title right. to get them there. And I always remind them, you have the ability to be a leader from whatever seat you're sitting in. Great point. And, um, you know, that's how you develop the leadership muscle. And so now, you know, coming back to your question around, um, a national office, that skill, developing that skill and that perspective early on, I think is immensely important because even as the president of Johnson & Wales University in Charlotte, or even as the CEO of Northeastern University here, I reported to other people who were in other locations um, that had a different perspective nationally. And I had colleagues and peers that were working in other markets that had perspectives on things. And so I learned how to become a networked leader um, and to keep the best interest of my community and my organization in mind, but also not be so blind that I couldn't learn from others in other locations and share best practices and create strength in numbers um, in terms of creating, you know, policies or best practices, things like that. 
And um, that muscle of becoming a network leader is developed when you're not an executive director. Right. It's when you're right. not a director of something. You, you have to develop that leadership capability to say, I have really good strengths and I bring those to the table, but other people have really good strengths too. And you know, if I can lean into them collectively, we're better. That helps you, I think, navigate through some of the, uh, the challenges that you're faced with when you're you know, a part of a larger national or perhaps a global organization. Yeah, it's fantastic. And of course, I love your advice on multi- multiple levels there of raise your hand, say yes, get involved, get experience. Don't wait for the title to come before you actually can do some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I take it that's what you would attribute your success or were there other resources or advice you'd offer that uh, aspiring leader um, that helped you, I guess, break through to senior leadership yourself? Yeah. Um, I'll go back to, I think, the importance of having a goal, right? If if you don't know what your goal is, then it's hard to achieve it because, right. you know, it just kind of is nebulous out there. Um, and so the, I will give you a couple real tactical tips, I think, that helped me along the way. Um, outside of volunteering and saying yes, you know, to new opportunities that came about, the first is the importance of mentors. Um, you know, I think that having a mentor or multiple mentors is extremely important. And, um, early in my career, I had an opportunity to go through a leadership program and they said, we want you to pick two mentors. One is in your field or your discipline and one outside of that field. And so, um, I happened to be here living in Charlotte at the time and was at CPCC um, I went to Tony Zeiss, who was then the president of CPCC, and said, will you be my mentor nice. inside the field? You know, I know my goal is to be in your seat or a similar seat someday. Will you mentor me on what it takes to get to that seat? Then I went to Bob Morgan, who was then the president of the Charlotte Chamber of Commerce, And said, you know, Bob, you're outside of my field and you work with businesses and industry that represent a variety of of industries. And you have a different perspective of um, understanding what the needs are across a diverse portfolio and yet still in a membership-based nonprofit organization. Will you serve as my mentor there? And what was great about that was that I had perspectives that I got to blend. If you think about my role at Northeastern and now my role at Johnson & Wales, I have the the experience and the expertise of having both of their perspectives shape what I'm doing internally at the university and what I'm doing externally in the community. And that, you know, I think is invaluable um, to get that. I also think it's really important to have um, uh, male and female mentors interesting, um, yeah. because they give you different perspectives. And so I had, you know, multiple female mentors along the way as well. And, and I think those are important. So that's kind of the, the one tactical checklist for a mentoring um, piece that I think is important. The other um, thing that I did that helped me break through into that leadership role was um, I I made a checklist of what my gaps were. 
And so I self-assessment, you know, a self-assessment. So yeah. yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I went out and looked at job descriptions of presidents and said, what, what is, what are the experiences that they need? What are the functional knowledge that they need? And then what are some of the, you know, other things in a category? And I went down and I made myself a, a you know, checklist and went through it and said, well, I can check that box from this experience or this job. And I, oh, I'm probably lacking there. And so I need to find that somewhere else. And, you know, I, I recognized, um, you know, one of those things was education. I had to earn a PhD. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, so that wasn't necessarily something I was going to get from a job, but I knew I had to check that box. And so I went back to school as a as an adult and as a parent of two small children, because it was important enough to check that box. Um, and then I think back to the nonprofit um, here, and, and maybe we can explore this in another way too, is some of the things I couldn't get in my job or in my other duties as assigned or in my institution, I then built the muscle by joining nonprofit boards and getting involved in nonprofit organizations. So. You know, I know you're really um, uh, experienced and, um, and very knowledgeable in development and fundraising. That was something that I couldn't seem to get in the jobs, the formal job titles, or in the other duties as assigned in my organizations, sure. in the institutions I was working in. So every time I joined a nonprofit board, I became the development chair and started intentionally that. intentionally. You, you yeah. volunteered to do that. In other words, volunteered to do it because yep. I knew I needed yep. the experience and I needed the, you know, expertise there that would come back to my job. So, you know, I think, you know, some people just kind of look at their current job and say, well, how's this positioning need for the next thing that it's, I think that's limiting. You know, you should look outside your job and where can you, find other things, either, you know, volunteering or in the community or something else that can build a muscle that you're not going to get in that particular job. That's fantastic. Speaking of fundraising, yeah, what have <laughs> you found? Because again, you have proven to be very successful in that. Um, have you found certain principles that have kind of guided you or made you more comfortable in a quote fundraising role? Yeah, I think, um, knowing what it, uh, what your needs are, you know, right fine-tuning your vision and mission for the organization so that you can easily articulate why the, the resources are important is paramount. Yep. Um, you know, then understanding what's important to the donor and aligning what is meaningful and important to the donor with what is, how that aligns with the strategy of the organization, you know, I think is, is critical and being able to um, connect those dots in a way that you can create, you know, a, a powerful message is really important. Um, that that's kind of the you know structural side of it. Um, you know, you know, Patton, the, the relationships are just key, and you you have to build a relationship with individuals and organizations, and you know, a level of confidence and trust because. Um, people want to back initiatives that are successful and that are going to make a difference and make an impact or, you know, create a level of return that's important for them. And that's, they're not going to necessarily do that with just, you know, an unknown. Exactly right. And, but of course you could spend 
all your time with the internal operations of a university. Um, do, do you kind of consciously say, I need, I need to get out of the office, so to speak, or get off campus for these external relationships for some percentage of your time? Or how do you find that kind of internal, external balance? Yeah, um, you know, I think that goes back to building your team and your bench. Right. Um, you know, early on at Northeastern, um, you know, I joke and I say, I started with three employees and their names were me, myself, and I. And <laughs> right, so, right. You know, a lot of hats had, you were wearing. <laughs> a right. lot of hats. So, you know, I had to, back to your, you know, how do you organize? I had to prioritize what needed to take precedence that day. And, you know, was that an internal operation? Was it a legal, regulatory, or did I need to get out to the community, you know, to get our, our brand out there? Um, after I had built a team, I built it in a way that there were complementary strengths. And so, you know, I brought in a number two who could manage the internal operations and keep a, a pulse on the academic programs and the legal and the regulatory, which then allowed me to spend more time in the community. Right. Um, Got it. You know, so. Uh, yeah. So I think I'm, I'm still assessing that now at Johnson and Wales. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really good people that have been keeping operations going in a very fine way. And what they needed is somebody to be out in the community. So, you know, I'm taking my marching orders from that to say, you know, my highest and best use is not necessarily micromanaging something. My highest and best use is to be in the community creating relationships right now. Yeah, it's fantastic. And leveraging the personnel you have or perhaps will acquire uh, right. to help you ba balance exactly that. Um, you know, having been in higher ed myself for a while, I know there is long range planning uh, within academia for sure. But yeah, but Cheryl, how do you do long range planning right now in such a kind of uncertain environment? How, how are you approaching that? I know it's early at Johnson and Wales, but I guess just philosophically, how are you looking at that? Yeah, um, you know, I am a big picture kind of opportunity uh, where to use the Wayne Gretzky analogy, where's the puck going right, as opposed right. to where, where's the puck today. So, um, you know, the things that I'm doing are, are really reading nationally, where is higher education going, where, you know, how do we need to be pivoting to remain relevant? There's no surprise that, you know, a lot of institutions will struggle, um, in this period now. And so I'm trying to keep myself educated and informed of where our industry as higher education as an industry is going. Similarly, I'm starting now to really educate myself on where the industries that my graduates are going, how those are being redefined. And so, yeah, good point. you know, Johnson and Wales, it, it's no surprise that, you know, the largest portion of our students are in culinary and hospitality and that is an industry that has been completely decimated over the last three months. Right. Um, so, you know, I look at my strategic plan for the university is not just about benchmarking myself against other private nonprofit liberal arts universities. I have to set that strategic plan in place with where is the industry going? What, what is the industry going to need? And, and not just those industries, but what are other industries you know, going to ask for in terms of talent as they come out. Because if we're not creating the pipeline of the workforce that the industries need, then why are we doing this? Exactly. You know? um, 
So, you know, my strategic plan right now is really, um, I've, I've shared this with the internal community at the university. It's around elevating our prominence in the region. And, and that gets defined by the ways that business and industries want and need us as an academic institution to be part of the solution. The second pillar is around academic innovation and looking at our academic programming to make sure that we are aligned with where we think the world is going, not only from a content standpoint, but from a learning modality. So right, right. online learning or hybrid learning or maybe stackable credentials or modularized credentials that aren't necessarily a full degree right out the gate or bringing more experiential learning and internships and co-ops into the mix and academic programming kind of in a broad sense of what does that look like um you know i think we have to be focused on student success and student retention it's it just as an industry in general um higher education needs to be more mindful of what we're doing to retain our students and wrap them with the support services that will allow them to persist and graduate, um, you know, and if you do all of those things well, the enrollment will follow and you know, the funding will follow. So those, those are kind of the high level areas where I'm thinking right now about our strategic plan. Well, it reinforces your point, though, and, and as opposed to being just a theoretical exercise, you're having conversations with the students themselves and you're having conversations with employers, right? And I yeah. guess that brings real time content and information to your plan. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of our favorite topics as nonprofit leaders is interacting with our boards. And I say that with a bit of a tongue in cheek <laughs> um, because I think I hear often as I know you do, you know, sometimes boards are super engaged to, to the point of micromanaging. Other times they're disengaged. And of course on a higher education campus, you've got advisory boards and boards of trustees and all that. I, what has been your historical and perhaps now approach to board development? Yeah, I'll give you um, probably uh, first the higher ed perspective, and then I'm going to flip that and give you a perspective as the chair of a nonprofit Good. board. Good. And so we can maybe you know explore both sides of it. Um, you know, as a, in higher education, um, you're right. We do have a lot of advisory boards and councils and things like that. I have found that. Um, Having a clear charter for why people are coming to the table or why the board is there and clear um, roadmap for their role is important. So, you know, you have a board of trustees in an academic institution, which is responsible for setting the strategic direction and the fiduciary responsibility um, and, you know, holding the presidents accountable for their, their jobs. Then you have advisory councils um, that come into play, which are kind of you know mini boards. And I've given them clear definition around the reason that we want you on this board to participate with us is you know around three or five things. And most often in academia, that is you know, help inform our curriculum, help make sure that we're staying relevant and we're evolving it as we need to to meet the demands of whatever the, the program or the industry is. The second thing is around creating opportunities for students to get out in the world of work. And so you know, we often talk about those as internships or 
co-ops or projects or career services. And so asking the boards to create opportunities. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then the third is around scholarship. And, um, you know, we know that a lot of students come into higher education and they will assume a lot of debt as a result of that. And so having advisory committees and boards that can help um, find those resources and create scholarship opportunities that reduce the burden of debt on students, I think is, is really important. So, you know, in my past, those were kind of the three pillars that I've created advisory boards around. Right, so, right. You know, they know why they're coming to the table and, and, and then I would say communicating that to them. It's, it's great to bring a board together twice a year or once a year and, you know, celebrate and have a meal and talk about that. But if they don't know why they're being invited to the table, there's no way they can help be part of the solution. So, you know, I think communicating that so people know why they're joining the board, why they're, they're serving in a certain capacity and what their responsibility is, is really paramount. And you've seen um, it. I'm well, sorry to interrupt ahead, you, Cheryl, but I was just going to say that because it seems so apparent because generally people that volunteer for boards are well-intentioned, but so you're saying the root of the problems in some cases, they simply don't have clarity about their job description. Is that fair? I think that's exactly it. Um, you hit the nail on the head and I was going to, you know, take that and translate it into being the chair of a nonprofit right. board. Right. Right. Um, you know, I uh, set out on the current board that I'm chairing smart start of Mecklenburg County um, we, we have a very interesting board. Um, it is prescribed in, um, in that our board makeup um, is legislated uh, to be representative of um, business community members, service providers, and government entities. And so when we think about making up our board, we have to do that within certain parameters um, that are already prescribed for us. That um, therein lies some interesting dynamics about appointed people who get voluntold to be part of the board as opposed to coming to it willingly um, because they have a passion in the work. And um, so there's you know some dynamics around that. And then I think a lot of them come, came into it just not knowing what their role was and why they were being, you know, asked to be part of it. So right, right. that was, you know, my first uh, job as chair of the board um, was, you know, a retreat to align people and say, here's the difference between being a board member and being a staff member. Our job as a board is to hire the CEO or hire the executive director to help shape the strategic direction of the organization and then to hold the organization accountable from a fiduciary standpoint. That's, right. that's our role. Right. Right? Our, our role is not necessarily to come in and say, you know, three layers down in the organization, you need to hire or fire X person. That's the CEO's job. That's micromanaging, right? Exactly. That's micromanaging. And, um, and yet, you know, on the other side, um, the board responsibility is to be engaged and informed about the strategic plan. So one way I've found to do that, we structured our, our nonprofit board at Smart Start that every board member serves on a committee that aligns with a, a portion of the work of the organization. So for example, we have members, board members who serve on the strategic planning committee. We have board members who serve on a development committee. 
we have board members who serve on a community engagement, which is really programming um, and what programs we're funding. We have board members who serve on a finance committee, we have board members who serve on a governance committee. And because of that, every board member knows what, it, what their responsibility is to contribute to the organization. Um, everybody has to serve on a committee, basically. Everybody has right? to serve on a committee. Yeah. Yep. And and then you know they, their work, um, they can understand their role. And then you know going back to our fundraising conversation, um, I've said it doesn't matter if you're serving on the development committee. Everybody on the board is a fundraiser, and everybody on the board has a, a responsibility to um, make connections for the executive director or the CEO to go out and you know solicit uh, donations or grants or you know do that and every board member has a responsibility to donate to the organization i was going to ask you uh, are yeah. the fundraising and donation expectations do they vary or do you kind of set a bar that you expect all board members to meet how do you approach that um it depends on the organization i have some organizations that are um uh populated by uh, executives that you know make very significant incomes and so there is a financial threshold that is stated in the board commitment um, that says you know we, we would expect that you give it X level but you know at the end of the day we just want hundred percent participation in this other board that I was just describing you know it's more of a, a true nonprofit and a lot of the people who serve on the board work in uh, Childcare, their childcare providers, you know, government—they're not bringing in a CEO salary as someone would from a Fortune 500. Great point. So, um, you know, we have not—we have given a recommended amount that we hope people will contribute, but at the end of the day, it's more important to have 100% board giving than the dollar amount that comes in there because you know from this world that goes on grant applications. It comes into a pitch, you know, with a foundation or a company. They'll ask what percentage of your board um, is supporting you financially, and to be able to say 100% of our board supports us financially is, you know, is an important metric. Love that, and it honors the contributions that are not just the financial contributions, doesn't it, of every board member, which indeed you need, particularly an organization like SmartStar. Right. Exactly. Um, Cheryl, you could rest on your laurels now. You have achieved, it sounds like, the goal that you set years ago in achieving uh, a college presidency. But knowing you, I'm guessing you're not <laughs> resting on your laurels. How do you now, as a senior leader, continue to self-assess, continue to set goals? How do you approach that personally? Um, I, you know, it's a great question, Pat, and I think part of it is how I'm wired, right? I, you know, I just, I'm, <laughs> right, never, right. I'm never satisfied with the status quo. Um, I, I have taken, you know, numerous uh, personality assessments. Uh, one of my most favorite is the Strengths Finder, um, which is a, a Gallup-based um, poll that I found very useful in Absolutely. a lot of my work. Um, and I've learned that I am a maximizer. That is one of my top strengths. And that is to use Jim Collins work. That is taking good things and making them great. Um, and that's where I, I really thrive. And so, you know, I, I see this as an opportunity now, even though I've, I've earned a title and I've earned a, you know, um, a goal that I set out for, um, now's my opportunity to take a really good institution to great. And that's going to, you know, keep me motivated and, and kind of striving for that. 
Um, I also think, you know, now at this point, when you achieve um, this kind of level of significance in your career, you have to start thinking about succession planning and not just succession planning in your organization, but I mean, as a generation. Right? Interesting. It's, yeah. it's one of the reasons that I was really excited to do this podcast with you is because I know that the people who are listening to this are where I was 20, 30 years ago. Right. And you know, they want to be inspired and they want to be um, you know, excited and motivated for how they can contribute and make a difference. And um, you know, my job now that I have achieved this is to help them achieve their goals because I won't be a president forever. You know, I'll, I'll have my day and I'll hit retirement. And so part of my job is building that bench strength, um, you know, in, in the institution and also in the community. That's fantastic. And you and I certainly share that goal um, because we all benefit if we can build the talent that it clearly exists but how do we empower that talent of a younger generation perhaps to move into senior leadership and, and you're doing more than your share of that. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about you've given great advice for that kind of newcomer to nonprofit aspiring leader. I'm also seeing, as I know you are, some folks coming from the for-profit sector, pondering perhaps at a time of high reflection now mm-hmm. as we're in kind of quarantine, thinking about moving into nonprofit. Uh, how do you advise someone that I'm guessing you've had conversations like that too, you know, thinking about making the jump from for-profit to nonprofit? Yeah. Well, you know, um, it, uh, it's, for me, it's not a new phenomenon. I think because I've been on the nonprofit side for so long, um, you know, and in some of these roles, I'm often approached by people who have had a career of success and now they want to go to significance and, um, and they often, you know, yeah. they often look at teaching as one way of doing that. And so, uh, you know, I can say probably for the last 10, 15 years, I've been approached by people who are in the for-profit sector saying, you know, I did my stint in the rat race and, you know, built up enough where I can now have a life of significance. And I want to do that by teaching. And the, the challenge, um, you know, just from a regulatory standpoint for a lot of those people is the credential. And, um, right, right. you know, I had to learn that um, early on as part of my gap analysis that I wanted to aspire to something I had to check off the credentials. And so, you know, I think finding ways for those individuals from for-profit organizations to come into a nonprofit, either through, um, you know, an administrative role where, they can lend uh, particular expertise in finance or technology or human resources or, um, you know, other ways that aren't tied to a, a regulated credential that forces them to hit another benchmark, you know, just to teach in a classroom. We've had a lot of conversations with um, executives doing that. Um, and then, you know, helping them find ways to come back into the classroom and guest lecture or, you know, to teach in a non-credit that doesn't necessarily have the same regulatory restrictions Requirements, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so those I think are all good ways, but I, I do see, you know, a number of people who've been fortunate enough um, to have built, you know, a, enough of a, a base that they can be secure that now they're thinking, maybe I take that expertise and, and move it into a nonprofit space. And there's a lot of ways 
that they don't think about to do that that are outside of the the obvious. That's so well put. And Cheryl, as I look at the notes from our conversation, you know, it's it's a literal checklist, I think, for a <laughs> aspiring nonprofit professional, seriously, in terms of what you've done in terms of goal setting and networking and volunteering for opportunities and getting involved in all that. Um, I wonder, is there anything else you would add to that list of advice for someone pondering the nonprofit path? Or would you reinforce something perhaps you've already said? Yeah, I think I would, I would probably just reinforce, you know, the, the ability to be agile and adaptable. Um, you know, I've seen in particularly kind of smaller nonprofits, um, you know, individuals go into this line of work because of a passion. And, um, you know, getting really focused on that, I think sometimes can lead them into the operational weeds without giving them perspective of, you know, ways to leverage resources and be adaptable and flexible moving forward. Um, and so, you know, there's, a, there's a, a term around lifelong learning, and I think we're all learning, right? I'm right, still right. learning today new things. I've certainly learned a lot that I can bring to bear, but it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm done learning. Um, and I think Michelangelo probably said, I'm, I'm still learning. I feel like I'm doing that every day. And so, you know, just keeping that perspective in mind that in the nonprofit space, having that flexibility, um, and agile, um, ability to pivot in the moment to, you know, to pivot around strategy, um, to think differently is, is really important to remain relevant. That's so well put. And I thank you. And what we'll add, um, perhaps you can also offer as a parting gift, a, a book recommendation. Uh, you mentioned strength finders is one that is on my shelf as well, but is there another one or two that you might lift up to our listeners? Yeah. Um, I will tell you my favorite book. And I, anytime I'm asked the question, I always talk about this one, um, is a book by Lance Secretin. Um, called Inspire, What Great Leaders Do. Nice. And I, I don't know if you've read it at all. Um, uh, it, I'm going it, to, sounds like it. Well, tell me, why is yeah, it so good? Well, I will, I will tell you, there was one um, segment in the book that was really um, instrumental in my mindset about being a leader. Um, and that is that the way that he breaks it down, uh, the difference between motivating and inspiring. And the, the punchline of it all is that when you motivate people to do something, you're motivating them to do something you want them to do. And when you inspire people, you're inspiring them to do something that they want to do. That's and well uh, yeah, it's just yep. so it was so powerful for me, I think, as a leader to think, you know, I could be a leader with a hammer and try and motivate people to help me achieve a goal that I think is important. But if I inspire people to want to be part of that goal, they're going to do it because they're inspired because they want to do it themselves. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I will add that to our show notes along with uh, all the resources you lifted up, Cheryl, I, I guess, obviously, uh, where would you like people who may want to learn more about the great work you're doing at Johnson Wales? Where would you like to send them? Um, certainly, they can Google our Johnson & Wales University uh, pages, uh, you know, on the web um, under Charlotte and see all of the, 
programs and growth that we will have in the coming years. And certainly you welcome to attach my LinkedIn profile to this so other people can see part of the leadership journey that I've documented there. Cheryl, it's fantastic. Thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Cheryl as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey as well as enhance your organization's current strategy. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, patmcdowell.com. Just go to the podcast or the news pages and you can find out more about Cheryl and all of the recommendations that she offered. As always, I'm grateful if you'd share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, consider subscribing. Just go to the podcast page, again, patentmcdowell.com, and you can see links to Apple and Spotify and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features like this one. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.